Hello, welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company. Thanks for your kind words about last week's chat with Father Pius. I received messages from all around the world, and it's wonderful to think we're all gathering amid the spirit of the Camino. I've got some homework this week. Remember I asked you to donate to Susie and Furmin's campaign to raise the roof at Casa Susie in Trabadello. It's on the climb outside Via Francia del Biezo. Well, I'm pleased to say that with your help, work has finally started on those renovations. And I saw the photos this week. Crikey, it's a big job. But the good news is Casa Susie will be opened before we know it. And you'll be able to walk in, past the map of Australia on the fence, and into the warmth and welcome of Susie and Furmin. What a blessing. I just love this quote from Roy T. Bennett. More smiling, less worrying. More compassion, less judgment. More blessed, less stressed. More love, less hate. I actually found that quote looking through some old notebooks and pinned inside one of them was a page and a half I'd written in a small gite in L'Hôpital Saint-Blaise. And I wrote about beginning my second Camino in Lourdes. Le Chemin de Saint-Jacques follows many routes through France, the most famous of which is Le Chemin de Puy. It begins in Le Puy en Valais and via the town of Oustabar, links with the Camino Francaise at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. I walked a slightly varied route from Lourdes to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in 2017. It was a kind of pre-Camino, largely to stretch my European adventure to six weeks. Lourdes is both astonishingly beautiful and astonishingly sad. Tens of thousands of people suffering a myriad of conditions, hoping and praying for a miracle, their loved ones carrying them and pushing them, hoping and praying. Thousands gather each night in front of the basilica to march together in a candlelit prayer and song. And the novena crackles out over the foothills of the Pyrenees, the ancient Chateau Fort de Lourdes, towering over them from a rocky escarpment above. Arriving in town via the train from Toulouse, the pilgrim's office meets you with open arms, the volunteer couple behind the desk, dedicated, gentle and warm. Climb the hills to Acal Jacquard Larouche, they said. Hospitalero Jean-Louis will be waiting for you. So walking into the gite, you could sense the kindness of spirit. It was a handful of euros for the night, a meal and a bed. Go through, she said, and open the doors at the end of the room. So being at the top of the hill, the home opened out the Shutters opened out onto the veranda, a full vista of the basilica, the river, the grotto, and then the Pyrenees hanging like a curtain behind a stage. This was Lourdes. And there were the pilgrims, a different kind of pilgrim, a pilgrim hoping that the mysterious and miraculous spring water would heal them. St. Mary appeared to a local girl, Bernadette Subaru, 18 times in the 1850s. And Mary told Bernadette to build a chapel in a small grotto in the side of the mountain. The spring water flowing through the grotto became famous for its healing powers. Six million people visit Lourdes each year. They are collecting barrels of the water. People with 10-gallon plastic drums. People literally bathing in it, drinking it, letting it fall all over their heads. And then, walking through the ravine which follows the river, the architecture and surrounds are incredible. The Basilica bells ring the tune of Ave Maria before chiming out the hour.
sitting on Yon Luis's balcony after dinner, the procession, the choral cloud of pilgrims singing Ave Maria below, was something I'll never forget. Faith is a frustrating companion. It leads and then discards you. It trusts and then distrusts you. In Lourdes, it was offering hope. Hope at the very least. Solace in the companionship. Le Chemin de Saint-Jacques winds its way past the grotto before almost immediately heading into a dense forest just outside of Lourdes. A great sense of sadness washed over me. Being fit and able to walk 1,000 kilometres, this great adventure on the horizon, while behind me tens of thousands were being wheeled around Lourdes seeking a miracle. Life isn't fair. Whoever makes the rules didn't know about love. The walk from Lourdes to Asson is exquisite, below the Gave de Pau, through centuries-old villages via L'Estelle Betharam, to climb via the Stations of the Cross to Calvaire et Chemin de Croix Exterieur. The 16 Stations of the Cross are marked with small chapels, and you climb steeply before arriving at a small cathedral, mirrored by life-size marble statues of Christ on the Cross, flanked by Dismas and Gestas, the two thieves killed alongside him. A snake crossed my path, and I walked that day with the thought, perhaps the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are my mind, my body, and my spirit. I may not always have my health, and I may one day not have my mind, but I will always have my spirit. I'd forgotten what I thought on that day, back in the wilds of rural France, but it's Nice to sometimes put your thoughts in words, to stumble across them somewhere along the way. I last spoke to this week's guest back in May 2020. Bibi Barami had just launched her book Camino de Santiago, Sacred Sites, Historic Villages, Local Food and Wine. And I said at the time I loved the sound of that book and I loved the book too. Well, a lot has happened since then. And I just love speaking to Bibi so much, I've invited her back because she's got a new book. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you. It's so great to be back. I love speaking with you, Dan. I wanted to take a step back before we get to the new book. Have you been to the Camino since we last spoke in May 2020? I have not, but I'm about to head back there in a few weeks, uh, this coming May. Because ah, I said in the introduction last time we spoke, one of the joys of the Camino is leaving a little piece of yourself with those you meet along the way. Cast your mind back to the last time you, you were there, Bibi. Are you a buoyant and energetic or social pilgrim? Or are you more studious, walking a quieter <laughs> pilgrimage? I would have to say I'm both. <laughs> During different parts of the day, um, because I love both. I love both. Let's talk about the book. I'm fascinated by it. It's called The Way of the Wild Goose, Three Pilgrimages Following Geese, Stars and Hunches on the Camino de Santiago in France and Spain. The perfect place to start is where you start, the Plaza Santiago in Loroño. Tell us about it. Hmm. Well, uh, it is inlaid with a massive human-scale game of the goose, and if anyone doesn't know what the game of the goose is, it's a children's, it's a it's a children's game. It's a European children's game, and it's a lot like uh, snakes and ladders that people may know in in other parts of the, the English speaking world. And um, it is 
often built on the pattern of a spiral or a zigzagging snake, and it has 63 squares. Uh, and they have there are 14 squares that have lucky geese on them. Now, this is inlaid on the Plaza de Santiago in Logroño, right next to Santiago's church there. And it is explicitly connecting the game of the goose with the Camino and saying that the game is a metaphor for the Camino and the Camino is a metaphor for life. And you play this game by rolling dice, moving your piece along, and you can land on lucky squares, which are the goose squares, or you can land on ordeal squares, uh, such as an inn where you decide to miss a turn and stay and sleep and drink a little more, you know, very much with all these parallels to the Camino. Um, you can fall into a well and you have to wait there until another player comes and releases you. And there are all these metaphors built into this game, but it's a game of chance. And you want to get to the 63rd square, the winning square, which on um, this inlaid Square in the Plaza de Santiago in Logroño is St. James in Santiago de Compostela. So it's very explicit that this is connected to the Camino. And it is not just a game of chance, but it is a path of initiation, of spiritual initiation. Wow. And there's a lot more going on there um, that I do go into in the <laughs> yeah. book. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do, you do. And that's the great the great narrative is so exciting and intriguing. It's amazing. And I'd, I've got to say, it's the first time I've ever heard of the, the, the concept, let alone the square and this life-size game mapped out in the square. <laughs> I, why have I never oh, heard I'm of it? I know, Dan. It is, it is um, this thing that kept appearing. You know, every time I walked the Camino, um, I first heard about the Camino back in 1986. Yeah. And, you know, from almost that moment where I just said, oh, what is that? And I need to learn more about it. And then I started walking it. I kept hearing about the goose and the sign of the goose. And I would especially meet pilgrims from Spain and France and some from Germany who were walking the Camino and looking for signs. And I would ask them what kinds of signs. And they would say, well, you know, for everyone, it can be different, but there are some that are universal and you know, one sign you look for is the goose and, and the goose footprint, you know, the three-pronged footprint of the goose. And it could be a duck as well. And, and I was just thinking, what? <laughs> it didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and so I would say, well, that's interesting. And, but it kept coming up. And then I, when I stood on that square in Logroño, I said, okay, there is something seriously directly connected going on with the goose and the Camino, and pilgrimage, and spiritual initiation. And so that's when I started paying much more attention. And I decided to, at that point, it just really grabbed me. And I went on a wild goose chase quite quite physically and, and intellectually and spiritually pursuing this symbolism. And I found it's not just this thing that modern pilgrims are bringing up, or, you know, beautiful works of, of restorative art, say, in the square there in Logroño, which that's also a modern uh, installation. But it's coming from something much older, and it has some roots in the Middle Ages. But the more and more I dug to find out what does the goose and what does the duck and what was, does the swan, and they all really are taken together in this, this vision of, of initiatory pilgrimage 
Um, I found that it goes way back before Christianity, and you can find folklore and archaeology that keeps speaking of divinities connected to geese, ducks, and swans, and especially female divinities who are not only associated with these birds, but may also have bird feet. And this is how you know you're in the presence of one. And these divinities also are rich in the folklore of France and Spain. And then on top of that, uh, on the Camino, almost every chapel and church that you visit as a pilgrim has some foundational story that speaks of it having been sacred before the church was built there, that it was maybe a holy spring or well or cave or uh, hilltop. And it was almost always associated with one of these divinities. Yeah. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, this is so much bigger yeah. <laughs> than I had realized. How fascinating. And you say that medieval stonemasons, who are another itinerant group, who navigated mm-hmm. in similar ways, in their engravings on churches of the 11th and 12th century, and they're probably the churches most of us mm-hmm. would have visited, they often treat geese and ducks as symbolically synonymous what exactly yes. did that mean, symbolically synonymous? I think they, they you know, people uh, for, for hundreds and thousands of years were so much more attuned to the natural ways and observant of, of wild animals. And I, I think, you know, you know, go back, throw yourself back a thousand years and, you know, you, most people lived in the countryside and, and were in tune with with the patterns of nature and animals. And I think people just noticed, boy, ducks and geese really behave very similarly. And even modern biology um, puts them in the same family. And not only that, some argue they really, there isn't a huge division. You can't say one's a different species. Some say, yeah, they're they're pretty much the same. They have have such similar patterns. They migrate, they they create these, these, uh, lifelong bonds, um, mating pairs. Um, they uh, have they they have very curious social behavior. I've been paying a lot of attention to ducks and geese now, and <laughs> and now I understand, you know, why medieval pilgrims kind of saw themselves as being like ducks and geese. Is this these migratory creatures yeah. who relied on each other and. You know, if you ever watch geese, you know, there's always that one goose who, who is the sentinel and he just did, or she is just observing everything around while everyone else, all the other geese are chowing down. And, and that one goose will sound an alarm if there's anything to be worried about, but they, they let the, the others eat. And, you know, pilgrims are kind of like that. We look out for each other and we also have these seasonal migratory patterns and, What's really interesting in Europe is that the Camino routes that merge, they, they, they come join at the Pyrenees in southwestern France and then cross into northern Spain. That's tracing pretty much exactly the flight of geese. And that's where the geese intersect when they're flying from further north and heading further south. And I, there, there are references that some pilgrims even said that they were following the way of the wild goose. The same way they were following the Milky Way, the path of the Milky Way. Yeah. And so, was, and that's why, you know, in the subtitle is, you know, following geese, stars, and hunches. Yeah. There are all these things that people who are much more attuned to, to nature 
and the patterns of the seasons and the rotation of the earth and the stars would have been using to navigate their way um, as pilgrims or itinerant masons, as you mentioned. And they would have noticed things that they may have held in common with, with ducks and geese. Yeah. Wow. And I guess then it's no, uh, it's no coincidence that the collective noun for pilgrims is a flock. <laughs> Very good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The book summary yeah. says, and you just mentioned it there about following the stars. Uh, the book summary says, with skill and insight, BB details the joys, challenges, and human kindness she experienced on this great ley line forged from the mix of natural earth energies with the human imagination that became her road to self discovery in a heart centered life. You talked there about stars, but what about this ley line? How do you describe it to somebody who wants mm. to know about it? Yeah, this was also one of the things that pilgrims, especially the ones who were telling me about the, the symbols and, and signs of the goose and the duck, they would also speak about the Camino as a great ley line, a great energy, throbbing energy line in the earth that, you know, if you're sensitive to it, you just can follow it and it'll, it'll guide you. It'll guide you to, you know, the West and it'll guide you back to, you know, to your home. Mm. And, and I think, you know, I mean, there's definitely something there because that part of Southern France and all across Northern Spain is, uh, carries some of the oldest remains of, of human presence in Europe. And so there obviously is something in the landscape that drew humans to it, you know, it's you can think about there was rich food and and water and good shelter, but there was also perhaps something about just the contours of the landscape itself and the geography that made for a natural movement of people as well as animals, and we followed animals. And so, I, I, I think we just for thousands and thousands of years were forging all kinds of footpaths in this landscape, mm. and. There are, are natural places that, that we, we, we want to pass through that just makes sense to us. I think that's why, I mean, the Romans definitely were building their roads over older footpaths that were used and probably forged by Iron Age people. And, and then medieval pilgrims after, after the Romans, you know, were using these same routes. And so it's just like so many layers of so many different time periods of humanity and, and all probably born of some sort of natural le- feeling about the landscape that just said, let's go there and then go there and then go there. Yeah, yeah. And here you are, you find yourself, I guess, imagining this ley line and, and walking the Camino in the book. And then you start to have these vivid dreams. It's, it's almost as if the energy is coming out of you. Yeah, definitely. And I, I also think... You know, I, I'm sure you had this experience too. After you were on the Camino walking for a, a, a week or two, you probably found that just the experience of simplifying your life and just focusing on wake up, eat something, walk, <laughs> shower, <laughs> eat something, sleep, yeah. that simplicity of those very basic rhythms of life, it just brings so much to the surface and and that includes you know whatever's in the subconscious and and it can you know manifest in dreams or just you know insights as you walk um, but I, I think that that definitely just the process of being a pilgrim and of walking and simplifying your life facilitates that intensification of dreams 
Um, but I also think, you know, it's, it's hard to not say, I, I think there is something in the land there. If anything, because it's been supporting us walking across it for improvement or whatever. <laughs> uh, I think that it, it, it supports us and, yeah. and that there is something, you know, there is something about why some places we go to and we just know it's holy and there's other places where we don't get that same feeling. And it's all along the Camino. It's just holy, holy, holy. <laughs> all these chapels, all these streams, all these uh, hills, they, yeah. they seem to have this imprint on them of both natural and human-made uh, holiness. Yeah. Oh, wow. You wrote in the book about what you call the not-so-coincidental discovery of St. James the Greatest Tomb. Just talk us through that passage of the book, because I found that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's the timing of it. It's, the timing of it was when, when people really needed something to unify and rally around, and, and they were all a, a mixed group of, of argumentative you know, people <laughs> trying. You know, we're, we're talking about the, the um, what was it, around 814 when St. James's tomb was discovered, so the early 9th century, and... It was a time when uh, North Africans, Berbers, and Arabs had had in, had invaded the Iberian Peninsula from the south, and had been there for about a century, and had gained incredible terrain and and influence, and absorbed so many of the the peoples of the Iberian Peninsula. And then there was just that that little margin of of, of people who 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 went north or, you know, resisted the, the North African and Arab invasion and, and absorption. And mm. they, they were a squabbling group of people who really, you know, they couldn't sort of figure out how to, to, to band together. And then I think, you know, somewhere somebody said, we need a rallying point. We need, like, you know, the, 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 the Arabs and, and North Africans have this concept of, of Muhammad, the prophet, to rally around and, you know, have that one unified cause. We need that. And, and I think that's when St. James was like, yeah, yeah, you know, one of the, the three top, you know, closest uh, apostles of, of Christ. Yeah, that would be really good if we had his tomb. <laughs> so I think they were looking for something to, to, to stop their squabbling and unify around and rally with. and. Yeah. And it certainly worked, and it came at just that time when, you know, um, Charlemagne was 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 also had expansionist ideas on Europe and was quite successful, except in the Iberian Peninsula. And as you know from the Song of Roland, that you know the Iberians didn't exactly quite want him either. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So here they were in this sandwich position between Charlemagne and the Franks. And their designs on on just having as much of Europe, just like the Roman Empire had. Um, and then the North Africans and Arabs kind of pretty much doing the same thing and, and taking over most of the Iberian Peninsula. So you have the Kingdom of Asturias um, there in this sort of Frankish and North African sandwich in going, hey, dudes, we better really uh, start getting along and find something to unify around. And I think that's what, what St. James gave them. Yeah. Wow, wow. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And then there's all this great lore, too, in, in northwestern Spain, you know, in Galicia, that just could really suit well 
the 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 mythic finding of of St. James carried over from the Holy Land, you know, in a stone boat guided by angels. And where he he is buried, that whole region is full of amazing legends that are both uh, you know extra biblical and 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 fantastic and and wonderful. So it's just a really mythic landscape. So it's a great place to find him and find yourself and find yourself indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I'm going to read a passage from the book, Bibi. You write about arriving in Santiago de Compostela. And I teared up when I was reading it. It just blew me away, actually. But you write, By the time I strode into the large square before the western entrance to the cathedral and ground zero for the Camino, I had forgotten once again about geese and the game of the goose as a metaphor for pilgrimage. All the same, pilgrimage had happened to me. It was very much a real and organic rite of passage and perhaps even a spiritual initiation, for I had been cracked open, broken down and built back up. I had replaced fear with trust. I had found faith in myself, in others and in life. And now, from ample experience, I knew without a doubt that the footpath was indeed a great ley line of potent and transformative energy. I stood before the towering cathedral, feeling emotionally raw, physically strong, and completely disoriented. This did not feel like arriving, but like being made of mist, a betwixt and between creature who could shapeshift into anything at any moment, or evaporate entirely. I stepped into the cathedral, the ultimate pilgrim's goal, hoping it would give me answers and solidify and ground me. There, just inside, staring beatifically down at me from overhead, was the very image of St. James that had been replicated to depict Santiago in the winning final square of Lorogno's Game of the Goose. Had I won? Why, then, did it feel more like the death square, number 58, than the winning square, number 63? I continued inside. And so the story begins. So let's not give away too much of the book. I loved it. <laughs> but there were some concepts, I think, that we can touch on that won't give away too much. And you mentioned it earlier, this concept that the goose may represent the divine and, and diving deeper, you discover goose and duck, as you said, footprints all through history. So what did you learn then about, and being a woman on the Camino, what did you learn about divinity and femininity as a pilgrim? Mm. Mm, especially on the Camino, um, mm. because there's so many expressions of the feminine divine that have survived. And I mean, you know, it, one of the things with, with the the uh, Christianity taking greater and greater root in in Europe was it, it became very much a, a religion of men. Yeah, I mean, you know, surround, focused on on. Uh, the church and uh, celibate celibate monks, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and and so you know, in in many ways, the expression of the feminine got kind of sidelined. And it, something that that I've learned in 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 my studies of anthropology, but I think anyone kind of knows this gut instinctively that if you have a sacred system that is um, is really overemphasizing one gender over the other there's this sense of longing to, to have a balance. 
and and was something where where it became very much a, a patriarchal institution, uh, and a lot of feminine expressions of the sacred were were pushed to the margins. Uh, and I go into it in my book. I mean, it's such a complex and long history, and yeah. and that's why we have things like witch hunts, you know, and, yeah. and persecuting female healers. It was a part of that. Um, and that comes down later, but, but people who are relying on the earth for their livelihood, I mean, again, the vast majority of people up until only just a couple hundred years ago, even, even less were, were, were growers or herders, you know, they were constantly connected to the earth and the earth has the, this, this wisdom that says, you know, both the male and the female are essential and sacred and necessary and people had shrines where they made offerings or 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 prayers or petitions to these different spirits and and many were female and many were male and then suddenly you have all male except well we can marry we can use mary and mary started representing so many of these all different female divinities they just got poured into her and that's why on the Camino you find, and I'm digressing, I'm going to come back. No, 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 no I'm fascinated, <laughs> but, yeah. But, but, but that's why you have so many of these chapels on the Camino and churches have these origin stories in nature that, that you know, like in Ponferrada, it was a Templar knight who found the image of Mary in, a, in the trunk of an oak tree in the middle of the forest. And he brought that image and they built a church to her in Ponferrada and that image is still there. Or um, why you have in Leboreiro, the beautiful little village in Galicia, has a story about how the Mary on their tympanum of their little chapel there was discovered by villagers uh, a few centuries ago, I think in the 13th century. And um, it was of, of Mary sitting in this, this healing spring that emerged from, was coming bubbling up from the ground and she was sitting there combing her hair. Well, that's that image of Mary was then not combing her hair, but but as Mary is the, the queen of heaven, was engraved in their tympanum and is still there. But that origin story is actually a story that you'll find all across the north of these sacred divinities who served the the Mother Earth, and they would sit, they would appear in fountains or in cave mouths. And they'd be sitting there combing their hair, uh, so it was like all these connections, and that that they haven't been lost. They've just been given a different name, and they're still there, and they're still present, and they're still connected to nature as much as to the sanctity of the the Christian faith. And so, it's it's a really powerful experience to start realizing that there's this beautiful balance of male and female divinity on the Camino. And if you just start looking for it, you'll see that the stonemasons were aware of it. And a lot of the stonemasons were commissioned by both local local people and, and the church to build these, these structures, these sacred structures. And they were bringing a lot of their own understanding, not only of Christianity, but of the folklore and stories that were present there in those communities in the land, as well as from their own backgrounds. And they just didn't get you know, eliminated. They just sort of um, got given different names and clothing, but still for an illiterate person who was 
still growing food on the land and, and herding and, and moving their, their sheep from winter to summer pastures, they would look at an engraving on a church and go, oh, okay, the old god or goddess is still there. I'm okay. I can go in. I can accept this, yeah. you know, this new change. It's a way... And it, it's it's uh, quite astounding. I mean, how much survives? I mean, art historians call it uh, the migration of symbols. That you can have uh, the same image, but it starts taking on different meaning. And it can be the other way around too. You can have the same image, and for for people who are uh, coming from a certain background or a certain geography, they can look at it and say, "Oh, good, they haven't completely eliminated the old gods." Wow, that's amazing. That is absolutely fascinating. I guess the, the thing about your study is that once you start to delve into some of this history, it could potentially be never-ending, couldn't it? I, I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine there are, there are you know, branches of that tree of history that, that, that just go on and on and on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff that's uh, I, I've found or it's just come up after the book went to press. <laughs> I was just, oh, wow. You know, and uh, there's one more, you know, but but it's like it, it's more like it's not saying anything more or different. It's just saying here's yet another piece of evidence saying yeah. pretty much the same thing. Yeah. That this is a really complex tapestry and um and it's really, I mean, any any history or experience, I think, has this rich, complex, multi-layered tapestry in it. We, each one of us, has a history and uh, that that is coming from all these different influences, and they're not lost; they're still in us. Uh, it's just a matter of saying, well, maybe I'll take some time and peel back the layers one by one and find out what were the influences and why does mom stay, still say that? You know, it makes no sense, but she still says it, you know, or stuff like that. that yeah. it, it's really fascinating how rich and complex we all are and our cultures are and our earth is. Yeah. Wow. This latest book takes you through Spain and France. How does the spirit of the Camino vary in those two cultures, do you think, Bibi? At the deepest level, it's, it's so interconnected because the, you know, so many of the peoples from France built the Camino in Spain. You know, the, that's why we have Via Franca del Bierzo, you know, French town <laughs> in El Bierzo. Or, yeah. Um, but but um, as a modern, you know, experience in Pilgrim, it's there's they're a little bit different for one thing you know the camino across northern spain the the most famous route and historic route the camino frances is just it, it it's its own experience altogether because you know so many people go there for both the the sacred and the social aspect and when you walk a trail in france one of the four main routes in france um, there's more of a sense that this is is uh, a physical trek with many of the people you meet. You tend to meet more people who are just French. Uh, not to say it doesn't have an international element, but it, not at that level. Yeah. And um, and so it can sometimes feel a little bit more secular, and and I'm not religious, but but you know, how the Camino Frances has a very strong spiritual element. It, it has a religious element for anyone who wants to engage that and is, is a devout Catholic. 
but it, you can it's palpable the spiritual aspects and in France there is a strong spiritual aspect but it doesn't come out in quite the same way I mean it comes out in the rich Romanesque churches and yeah. Gothic churches that, that you you experience but it still feels more like you're going for a walk in the woods um, but if you start digging deeper like you know you start slowing down and you start talking to locals about hey i'm curious about what's the story about this church or the name of the village or uh tell me what you you know what what's the history of the camino through through here then you start finding that they're very very similar because the locals in both france and spain are the guardians of the lore and they're very proud of it and and they know the land at a level that it's intimate you know the land yeah. is animated and and living to them and the stories that come out it, it, it's it's the same richness and mm-hmm. i think that's where i just really lucked out uh when i just started slowing down and and asking people and and they started just telling me these these amazing stories uh, yeah. about their own church and or their own village and I, and and those were a lot of times, you know, clues that led me even deeper down the rabbit hole. And I realized this is something that's not just my imagination yeah. or my particular vision quest. You know, no, no, it's that's like, r- that's right. No, there's a there's a a distinctive uh, historical narrative through it that is just absolutely beautiful. You write about pears dropping from trees and remembering pussycats and how they like to be addressed. <laughs> it's it's beautifully written, BB, but tell us when, then you just mentioned, tell us about that moment when you realised this journey would become a book, because I'm certain it was an idea and then you would have thought, oh no, now I have to do an awful lot of research. And exactly. you, have, you have done a stack of research. It blew me away how deep you've, how deep you've gone. You really have done a lot of work, yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. It, it was quite an undertaking. Um, I, th- I think I, I really started taking notes and thinking about this whole goose concept um, probably since 1995. Wow. When I started stumbling into some really interesting folklore from the north of Spain, especially in Asturias and León. It involves bird-footed women, you know, divinities and, you know, like really like nature spirits uh, with bird feet and who would test humans. And uh, what I loved about them was they they were the the moral protector and guardian of not only nature, but also human society. And anyone who violated either would come up with some pretty creative but severe punishment. And anyone who honored both the harmony and balance of human society as, and the harmony and balance of nature would be in, incredibly rewarded. And I just kept thinking, what are these stories? They're fascinating. And I don't remember, you know, they're, they're, they're different, you know, bird-footed women <laughs> in springs yeah. and caves. And then I started finding that it just it extended into France and then it extended into Germany because Jacob Grimm wrote about it in Teutonic. Uh, mythology back in what the 1800s and he was discovering that there are these very interesting bird-footed women who actually seem to be a native goddess of 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 europe and uh so i just kept started taking notes and i started i started noticing that you know okay these territories where these stories show up is also where there are 
broad, broad roots of the Camino, you know, across especially France and then into Spain. So I started paying attention to that and taking notes and talking to people and looking at archaeological studies and whatever I could dig up. Um, even Walter Starkey and Georgiana Goddard King, um, in their accounts of journeying along the Camino, um, write about these bird-footed women. So I thought, okay, you know, okay. <laughs> so I kept noting and noting and noting. And then I finally decided I need to take my nerdery off the page and back onto the Camino. And I devoted three pilgrimages to looking for goose signs. And that's, those are the three pilgrimages recounted in, in the book. And I really felt that by the time I was midway through the third pilgrimage, that's when I knew I don't think I need to go on a fourth pilgrimage, at least not on this topic. You know, I will be walking the Camino for the rest of my life, but I think I can safely say <laughs> the, the, the goose quest um, took three pilgrimages to really, it, with satisfaction, unearth and, and work out what's going on. But it wasn't really um, until the pandemic that where everything else just stopped. You know, all yeah. my other projects were canceled or rescheduled or postponed. And I just found myself, you know, sitting as we all were at home going, what do I do with this time? I don't want this to be the year of the that I remember as the pandemic. I want this to be the year I remember as doing something else. And that's yeah. when I pulled out all those notebooks and the thousands of photographs and just started looking through everything. And that, and I realized, I, I think I know what the, the structure of this book is and what I can say about this, this quest. And it's thanks to the, the focus and uninterrupted time of the pandemic that I was able to put it together and, and write it. That's fantastic. You write in the book, Bibi, about history and about uh, your quest, but there's also that lovely narrative about the pilgrimage and being a pilgrim and, and the Camino journey that all of us are sort of interlinked in a way because of the spiritual nature of it and, and it keeps drawing us back. But I, I loved when you wrote, I also knew from the times I'd walked with others for portions of the trail that we fellow travellers become mirrors to each other for what the path is pulling up from inside us each. Do you think that's the reason that so many of us are drawn back time and again? I think so. I mean, there's definitely that aspect of the great adventure, the freedom of the open road. Mm. But then this particular open road delivers synchronicities at a frequency and impact that I've never heard people speak about on, say, the Appalachian Trail. Uh, and, and I think that definitely draws us. And, and I also, I mean, that's something I learned about the, the way of the wild goose and this whole goose symbolism and pilgrimage and quest is that it is there for each one of us to engage and it will engage us each uniquely. And just by saying, I want to walk this and I want to be open to what I see and looking for the signs. And sometimes those signs are the people you meet. And sometimes those signs are just casting your eye on a particular stone and going, wait a minute, there's something on that stone. And, and it, it opens up something in you and it gives you a particular gift that is unique to you. 
Mm. And and I think that's why this is such a... Now I understand those pilgrims I met, you know, so many years back, the French and the Spanish pilgrims who told me about the way of the goose and looking for the signs, that they said, you know, there are universal signs, but then there is this very unique uh, path that is only for you, that is your relationship with the goose. And the goose is that magical package of synchronicity and the earth and others and your own your own spirit and consciousness and paying attention and being open to the possibilities wow that's a great answer <laughs> wow <laughs> you, the, there's a war in europe right now um, economic oh, uncertainty God. across the globe not to mention yeah. the pandemic you're an yeah. anthropologist by trade i guess you kind of in a nutshell, study humanity and try to make sense of culture and history and society. What have you made of the last two years? Oh, I am still working that one out. I'm, my heart is breaking for what's happening in, in Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, on the, the, the theme of the pandemic, I mean, it's, you know what, they they both really speak of of life out of balance, you know, not saying that anyone deserves any of this, absolutely not. But, you know, we're, it's like the earth is saying, yeah, we need to find balance again. We need to step back and, and look at the way we're living and forefront kindness and generosity mm. and real balance, real living in harmony with each other and with the earth. Um, and I think a lot of people are either doing that or are striving in that direction. Um, there's just a few nut jobs that are really making that <laughs> harder. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 having, you know, spent so much time studying cultures and speaking to people, I have to say, you know, humanity still is so much more good than not good. And it, that gives me hope. Yeah, yeah. Even in these dark times. Yeah, yeah. You're back home at the moment in Colorado. Your father passed away just a few weeks ago. And I, I want to offer our deepest condolences, Bibi, from me and all of my listeners. But have you had a chance to reflect on his life and how his presence in your life will resonate with you in days and weeks and months and years ahead. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for this. And yeah, I think it's, it's, this is going to be an unfolding process, but I've already thought about with such gratitude, you know, first of all, my father lived a, a, a full, good, long life. And he very much with the pilgrim spirit, you know, he, he created a whole life for himself in a new homeland. You know, he came to the United States in 1949 and into Colorado in 1949. I mean, that's a real pilgrim spirit yeah. of walking into the unknown. And he fell in love with, with America and he knew that this was where he wanted to be of service and contribute and raise his family. And so I, I grew up, you know, I was born here in, in Colorado and I grew up uh, watching him always, you know, be, be, be true to that spirit of, of doing what's right and doing what you believe in and doing what is really the, 
unique to you and that you can contribute and bring that out. And he always wanted me to find that which made my heart sing and, and really embrace it fully and go for it, you know, whether it sounded practical or not. And that's huge. Um, and I, I think so much of his courage and his, uh, vision of, of, how much he, he encouraged and, and loved the rest of us to, to mm. do that which was most important to us, that definitely is with me very much. And um, his courage yeah. to, to create a whole life. So Wonderful. Gosh, what a, yeah. what a legacy. And how lovely that you said he, he lived a long and, and, and wonderful life. That's, yeah. Well, if, if your daughter is saying that about you, you've done okay, haven't you? <laughs> it's great. It, it, I mean, it is great to think about it like that. And indeed, you've done a lot of research on spirituality. So, so what remedy do you use to help you navigate a, a time such, such as this, such a difficult time? Mm-hmm. I Internally, I, I take a deep breath and I just try to, you know, get my focus back into the present time. And that might mean unplugging my circuits from all of the, all of the news, yeah. and just kind of finding my center and 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 going there in that place that's uh, not touched by that to to really ground myself. I also uh, find a, a walk in nature is incredibly powerful, and and nature can be just the local park, and and uh, I've make sure every day I, I go for a walk and, and I pay attention to the beings in, 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 in wherever I'm walking, you know, right now I, there's a pond in, in my, my parents' neighborhood and I've, I'm, I've gotten to know the trees and the rocks and there's certain birds that, you know, they, they are there every day and they have their voices and, uh, it really is is a wonderful thing to to pay attention to them and start listening to what they might have to say, yeah. uh, and that helps me a lot. It, it's a it's a broader perspective, um, and then I just I hope that um, I can somehow make a contribution to making somebody's day better, uh, and 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 spread more more positivity and and kindness and and light. Yeah. Wow. Because you're not only walking through your community, and it's the same on the Camino. Um, It's a form of pilgrimage. You're also observing others, taking in their mannerisms, their intentions, their motivations, because Mm -hmm. when you write, you're an author, that's what you do. And you're an anthropologist, so it's in your very nature to collect Mm -hmm. from others what you need and, and what you hope you could potentially use. So I wonder, how do you switch off? And, and allow yourself to get better. Hmm. I think the, the, the presence, the breathing, and definitely the walk. Yeah. BBI began the um, podcast with a quote from Roy T. Bennett. Uh, he said, more smiling, less worrying, more compassion, less judgment, more bless, less stressed, more love, less hate sums it up pretty much, doesn't it? Mm, it does. It does. Yeah. Could The Way of the Wild Goose be a movie? 
<laughs> oh, I would love that. Um, so would I. I'd, I'd like to say yes. <laughs> it'd, it'd be part the way, part Da Vinci Code. There's your elevator pitch, PB. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it, Dan. Let's, let's say yes and invite uh, someone out there to say, let's think about making this into a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it, me and you. Okay, so now you talked about how you're observing things and perhaps, you know, you're down at your local park and you see these other creatures and you're, you're not necessarily taking in everything all of the time. But it's amazing. When you arrive in Lorogno, in the book you write about this so beautifully, you remember a scene back in Barcelona. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, that, same, that same year that I discovered that square in Logroño, I was on a almost... It's like a four and a half month long research uh, trip in, in two parts to Spain where I was writing the Spiritual Traveler Spain guidebook that came out in 2009. And I was, I was in that four and a half month period backpacking all across Spain, visiting what um, not only I, but, but locals and, and experts had, you know, we, we sort of deemed, or I, through talking to them, I, I, I made this list of what are the most holy sites in Spain. And the publisher I worked for, even though it is a Catholic press, they said, we want this to be Catholic with a lowercase c, meaning universal. Yeah. So pick the holy sites, whether they're Christian or not. And so I had already been backpacking and walking all over Spain, north, south, east, west, and one of the places I really immersed in um, that I love is, is Barcelona and in the cathedral, in the cloister there. Anyone who's been there will know there's something quite unusual. There are 13 white geese kept in the cloister. And at the time, I didn't know that there were 13 geese. I just knew there's a, <laughs> there's a gaggle of geese in this cloister. <laughs> and. Uh, it's quite magnificent, but I didn't know why they were there. And it was when I was on the Camino and I discovered this whole, this square with these 13 geese on it, um, 14 if you count the winning square, but most Game of the Goose have 13 geese. I sent an email to a friend in Barcelona and I said, hey, could you go to the cathedral and count how many geese are there? <laughs> And she, you know, it took her a few days, but then she, she did, and she sent me another email and, and said, yeah, they're 13. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I, I wrote to her and said, do you know why? And she's like, not really, no. Um, and, of course, now I, I've, I've, I've learned that, I mean, for some Spaniards, this is actually a di direct reference to the Game of the Goose and the spiritual journey and pilgrimage and, and initiatory path. Um, but wow. officially... Thir the 13 geese refer to um, Santa Eulalia, who was believed to have been martyred there at the age of 13. And I think she, she had endured 13 uh, tortures, forms of torture, before um, her, her soul ascended to heaven. So that's what the official story is that the 13 geese represent. Wow. But, you know, why, why geese? You know, why not 13-something else? Why did they pick the symbol of the native European goddess for the 13 uh, years or, or tortures um, 
So I, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, oh, yeah, and of course, you know, geese are, are, are the sacred animal of the goddess Juno. And um, there's a lot of stories about, about that, that, you know, now I'm wondering, were there 13 geese? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I could talk to you all day, Bibi. Honestly, it's fa- just fabulous. I, I didn't want to give away too much about the book, but you basically, as you said at the start, you ended up literally in a wild goose chase as part of this extraordinary game. And if anybody's listening and, and wondering, you can go onto Google Earth and zoom in on the plaza and there is the board. There is the game board. You can see it from Google Earth. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And I love the book. It comes out mid-May. I'll be encouraging my listeners to pre-order a copy today because it's amazing. So, Bibi, congratulations on what you've been able to achieve, the journeys you've taken us on, the blessings you've brought for all of us. And I'll finish the way I finished last time we spoke. I think we're all so lucky to have people like Bibi Barami in our midst. You are a storyteller, a keeper of the wisdom to pass on to pilgrims now and into the future. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Bibi, and I wish you and your family all the very best at this difficult time and and all the very best with the new book and for your future endeavours, both as an author and as a pilgrim. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Buen Camino. Buen Camino, Dan. Thank you so much. I really love speaking with you. I feel very blessed and fortunate. My guest this week was the author and pilgrim Bibi Barami. Her new book is called The Way of the Wild Goose, Three Pilgrimages Following Geese, Stars and Hunches on the Camino de Santiago in France and Spain. It's magic, and so is she. You can pre-order the book at all online bookstores right now. Roy T. Bennett wrote, More smiling, less worrying, more compassion, less judgment, more blessed, less stressed, more love, less hate. Amen. Thanks for hitting play. Thanks for your continued support, particularly to my Patreon sponsors who make this podcast possible. If you're interested in sponsoring me to help the podcast continue, go to patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. That's all we have time for this week. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins, Buen Camino. Mm